Welcome to the book show here in Smock Alley for the International Festival of Literature Dublin. Tonight we're joined by Will Self, who is the author of over 20 books, including the novels Cock and Bull, How the Dead Live, The Butt, which won the Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, and his recent trilogy Umbrella, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize for Fiction, Shark and Phone. He's published six collections of short stories, various non-fiction work on topics as varied as food, buildings and psychogeography. On the latter subject, Will joined us on the book show a couple of years ago for a long walk along the Thames in London. But tonight, he's here in Dublin and he joins me now to discuss his work uh, and various times we're living in today. So please give a warm welcome to Will Self. So Phone is the third book in a trilogy. We've had uh, Umbrella and we've had Shark. Uh, and the book moves from the 1970s to the present day. We take in espionage, mental health, the war in Iraq. And it opens with a character that we know, Dr. Zach Busner. Um, he's wandering around a hotel. He's very agitated. He's confused. He's thinking about his family and his patients. And he's flashing backwards and forwards. So we first met him, obviously, in Umbrella. And we meet him again in Shark. So where is he now in Phone? What's going on with him? Uh, well, he's, he's, he's 78 years old now. I mean, he's been, I mean, I think, you know, I've carried him with me from narrative to narrative now for 27 years. So he's aged along with me. He's appeared in lots of my books and stories. And, and now, bless him, he has early onset Alzheimer's, uh, like many people in, in their late 70s, or just Alzheimer's, it's not that early an onset. <laughs> It just seemed, it wasn't that I particularly wanted to say anything about Alzheimer's, though obviously it's one of the big issues of the day with a, an ageing population. It, it was more just that it seemed obvious that he would <laughs> in that situation. So, you know, when you're very close to a character like that, and particularly in the two previous novels, Umbrella and Shark, we've been very much in his head. That's just where his head told me it was going. And of course, there's so much in the books about mental health that it's another it's dementia is another aspect to get into. Right. So the, the the main kind of theme of these novels is to relate psychopathology to technological development and to warfare, uh, and to look at these three phenomena and the way that they interlink. Uh, and of course, Busner is himself a psychiatrist, which is a, a way into all of that. Uh, really, that each of the novels has its own pathology, its own war. Umbrella, we had this strange disease, encephalitis lethargica, which kind of seemed to make people into kind of human automata. Uh, and I related that to manufacturing as a mode of production uh, and to the First World War itself, and, and particularly what I think of as the kind of assembly line of death that was the trench system that in Flanders and across France. Then in the second novel, Shark, we move on to the kind of explosive nuclear age and the, the mode of production becomes nuclear energy, uh, the mode of warfare becomes the second war, the atomic bomb, and the psychopathology becomes kind of LSD or other otherwise induced psychosis of one kind or another or post-traumatic stress disorder. Now we're kind of up to the present. So we're up with bi-directional digital technology, we're up with the Iraq war, and we're up again with various pathologies, but the pathology that really perhaps is more at the center of phone than Alzheimer's is autism, mm. uh, which is often seen, and I think it's fascinating in our culture at the moment, the way in, in which autism is, you know, many people seem to feel, if not consciously, at some kind of ulterior level, that it's either autism is being induced by the digital technologies or the digital technologies are being created by autists in order to kind of mm. satisfy their own particular problems with socialising and with engaging with other people. But I guess it's well, I mean, people say that about there's more people getting cancer and more illnesses now, but we didn't talk about things a long time ago. We didn't have words for certain things. I mean, those kind of things are maybe always there, just not as, as, as publicly spoken mm. about or publicly acknowledged. Well, maybe. I mean, I think that's a big argument, particularly with autism, that you, you hear that because there's been this massive increase in diagnoses, um, that factor of 10, in fact, in the past 15 or 20 years, and people say, 
oh, well, you know, the prevalence was always great, but it would have been the odd boy or girl in the class and you wouldn't have had a label to put on it. Yeah, I think there may be a degree of truth in that. I mean, I'm certainly not of, of the, of the, of the uh, group who say that, you know, our unrestricted use of uh, smartphones is making us autistic. I don't think... But I nonetheless think there's something slightly odd going on with the way in which we diagnose things, what mental pathologies represent in our culture. You know, it's become, it seems to me, to have a certain kind of mental pathology has become a kind of identitarian thing now. It's like, you know, it's like LGBT+, plus, or it's like your heritage or your ethnicity. You know, everybody... Uh, I think it is a kind of weird thing in our culture that people want validation for things that they had no choice in. You know, I mean, it, it's a kind of... I mean, I've never understood nationalism myself for the same reason. I mean, you're just born where you are, you know, and beating a drum over the fact that you're British or Irish or anything else always struck me as slightly ridiculous, unless, obviously, it's in, in opposition to another gang of nasty nationalists. <laughs> when, you, when you talk, you do actually talk about uh, technology a lot in the book, and um, it's there in the th it's there in the three books. Actually, um, you're talking about warfare, and as you mentioned, psychopathology. Um, and you've com you've commented in the past about the internet and the idea that close linking, uh, you know, a byproduct of, of military defence, particularly something like Sage, which was built in the fifties. I, I think it's I, I'm a monist. I mean, and I think people find these texts quite difficult to cope with partly because of what they look like formally on the page. They're written without, you know, the normal paratextual equipment that you have. Uh, they're written in the continuous present. They're written in, in a ver variation of a stream of consciousness. And uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not a dualist. I don't think mind causes body or body causes mind. It is one thing. Right? That, that should be pretty obvious to anybody if they stop to think about it. So it's not so much that I think that you know the technology causes the pathology or the pathology gives rise to the technology. They're aspects of the same phenomenon, mm. uh, in, in my view. Uh, and yeah, you know, you mentioned the Sage system. What I love about the Sage system, which was the first. Uh, computerized system for early warning system for intercontinental ballistic missiles and it went went on stream in 1955 and the way the operators uh, logged an incoming missile was to actually fire a light gun a, a beam of light at a cathode tube at a screen so I love the idea that the inception of this technology takes the form of a game like, like being like a kind of arcade game from the very very beginning but I think more than that what the relationship between a pathology like autism and, and the internet and the world wide web is is that we, we as a, a society, it seems to me, have, have, have stopped believing uh, in the kind of Freudian thinking. I mean, it's still around, obviously, and everybody's going to see their therapists. But there is a new biological essentialism in terms of thinking about mental dysfunction. You see it particularly with autism. And there's a, there's a reluctance, I think, anymore to believe that we can change our minds with our minds. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of... There's a, there's a new biological essentialism and a new belief, again, in technology. You know, if there's something wrong with your head, then we've got a machine or a pill yeah. that can fix it in that way. How do you think technology is impacting on, on you as a writer in terms of how you physically write? A lot, I, I've I talked to a lot of writers, obviously, who, and a lot of them have said they've started ditching laptops and going back to handwriting and using notebooks because it has a physical and mental and intellectual impact on what you actually put on the screen or the page. What, well, how, do you, how do you write? Are you well, notebooks? I, I, Are you laptops? I, I, think it's, I'm, I think it's way more profound than that. And I'm amazed. You know, Marshall McLuhan said in Understanding Media, which was published in 1959 but still reads as fresh as paint, said that an artist is an expert in sense perception. Uh, and, it, you know... That's right, you should be an expert in sense perception. And it strikes me as utterly bizarre that more writers didn't notice that more quickly. Uh, you know, the, the perceptual alterations that take place when you work on computers, and particularly when you work on a network computer. So I think, I, uh, I mean, yes, modestly, I went back to, to working on a manual typewriter 13 years ago. 
2004. Why 2004? The inception of uh, wireless broadband. Because up until wireless broadband, it's true that you could be working on a computer and you would know that access to the internet was there. But if you recall, you had to you know, put a, a jack into the wall and, and then you had to have the noise that went... You remember that one? That's a great rendition. <laughs> so spookily accurate. Yeah. Well, I used to hear it a lot. Too much, you might argue. But even then, at least you had to do all of that before you, you saw what it was like if a man put his hand up a donkey or if, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know whatever kink, little kink was interrupting your writing day or you decided that you really just had to have that pair of reindeer hide oven gloves you'd been <laughs> promising yourself. But once 2004 came along and you had wireless broadband, as a writer, I think it was a disaster because writing is about words and it's about thinking in words. And, and, and to some extent, it's about thinking about images and translating them into words. But what the web does for a writer is you're typing along and you think, she drove a Morris Traveller. And then you think, oh, I can sort of remember what a Morris Traveller looked like, but I'll just have a look on the <laughs> web. <laughs> 15,000 Morris Travellers. Huge distraction. And the, but worse than that, when you come to insert the Morris Traveller into the text, you're describing a picture. You're not thinking in words. Other problem with the web relates to the codex. My argument would be that the novel... Is, a, is an art form that grew out of the physical book, the Codex. If you think how novels work, they need to be internally self-referential. I mean, yes, you can maybe have a word that you don't get in a, no in a novel or a bit of information that you would like a bit more on and you might go to your encyclopedia or your dictionary. But on the whole, you sit down with a book and you read it from beginning to end. The text contains the world of the book and the physical book contains it as well. Once you start reading digitally, there's no need for any of that to obtain at all. Well, fortuitously, you have the book in your hand, which I think is a good <laughs> point for me to say, would you mind reading something from phone for us? Well, I'll read something about a phone from phone, maybe. This is, this is poor old Zach Busner being harassed in the lobby of a hotel in Manchester. <laughs> because he's rather foolishly, in his somewhat forgetful state, come down to breakfast naked. Uh, aren't you going to answer the bloody thing? I'm sorry? I said, aren't you going to answer the bloody phone? Gingerly, Busner removes the warm, pulsing object from his jacket pocket and is relieved to discover it isn't his own penis but the smartphone. It's the one Ben gave me, isn't it? He peers down at the screen, which bears the flashing legend, Ben Calling. The manager and the security guards peer down at it as well. They all listen dutifully to the nursery rhyme ringtone, which rolls tinnily on through its ordinal verses. He played three, he played knick-knack, Who's Ben then? asked the manager. Aren't you going to answer it? The security guard with the cauliflower ears reiterates. There's a button on the screen labelled reject. And although it pains him to do so, Busner touches the red spot and Ben's gone, falling away end over end into the humming void. It was my grandson, he says. I'll call him back later. Well, the security guard remarks as they move on, aren't you the daft apath? Your grandson would probably be able to help get you out of this mess. That I doubt, Busner murmurs. That I doubt. He roundhouses his heavy old legs, feeling the knick-knack of his ball sack as it paddywhacks from thigh to thigh. But Zack isn't in the lobby anymore. He's travelling back down the rabbit hole of memory, travelling back, way back, to a cluttered little bed-sitting room off the Corstaphine Road. Thank you. <clears throat> At what point did you know that
that you were writing a trilogy because it, in one sense you can look at a trilogy as it's a big commitment from a reader, a huge commitment from the writer, um, and you can look at it as, you know, is there a fear that you'll be able to stay interested in the characters yourself for three books, or are you looking at it from the point of view of this is a massive panoramic possibility, I can do what I like with this? I, I wrote the first novel, Umbrella, and it was a departure for me uh, in the sense that I think my earlier books may have been, in terms of subject matter, fairly radical, but they were relatively conventional for the most part in the way they were written. I, I wrote a book called Walking to Hollywood about 10 years ago, which was in a way a transitional book, and it started to... Uh, and then I, then I wrote Umbrella, and really writing Umbrella was... was yeah, I mean, obviously it had to have content, it had to have a structure, it had to have a narrative, it had to have all of those things. But I have to say what I was much, much more preoccupied by was the style, was getting the style right, and I was interested in that. Because uh, your question, I mean, I thought, I've never asked myself a question like that. Mm. I've never thought in that way at all of kind of handling all the characters and the scale. And I, I mostly just think about making the sentences yeah. really good. And then uh, my theory of writing is if you write a really good sentence and then you add a lot of other ones to it, you've probably got quite a good book. I know that's <laughs> a slightly mad way of thinking about it, but that's how I tend to go about it. When I finished Umbrella, uh, and I thought it was a self-contained novel, and, I, and, I, and unusually I didn't have an idea for another book at that point. I normally am two or three books ahead. And then suddenly I had this incredible Donne where I not only thought it's a trilogy, but I also knew what the next two books were. And it just more or less, I mean, not completely, that would be like mad, but I, I had a pretty good idea of, of what was going to be in them. Can we talk a little bit about a, a character called, called the Butcher, who's very handsome and very charming and erudite. He's, he's a gay man, he's also a spy, and we've seen this idea of um, homosexuality and espionage linked lots of times, right, going, going back to, to Marlowe. Um, but they're... You know, the gay characters are not the most progressive characters in the book. They're a little... They're, they could be out of the 50s in a way, and I'm wondering, why did you keep them in the closet? Well, I mean, partly because of who they are. I mean, the butcher, whose who's real name is Jonathan Dath, is, is a senior MI6 operative. Uh, he's what's called an intelligence branch officer for MI6. Um, the, as to why he hasn't come out particularly... Uh, I think it's more to do with childhood experience, uh, to do with being abused as a child, to do with his relationship with his parents as much as anything else. But once he's in... You know, it's also of an age. I mean, he's my age. Um, is it conceivable that a, a man in his mid-50s in that kind of occupation wouldn't come out? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and his lover is a... Uh, you know, commanding officer of a, of a line regiment in the British Army. Again, not exactly an occupation where you're likely to really brute about your great enthusiasm for the Rocky Horror Show and kind of, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you also you call his his lover. You give, you give him the brilliant name of Gawain, which I really like. And we're, we we move at one point in the book. We're in Iraq just after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, um, and his his whole regiment have been involved in very you know salacious things, they've been using means of torture, stuff that we know about now, they've been using sort of ways to, to get at people. Ah, you say um, you know about it now, yeah. but it's an ongoing and yeah. large-scale controversy. Stuff we, we don't even know. Mm. Um, do you think that it's, it seems in some way that surprisingly little has been written about those atrocities in fiction? So what comments did you want to make about British involvement in Iraq? Let's pull back from the atrocity word. We're not actually talking about atrocities here. We're talking about abuse of Iraqi detainees by the British Army. Um, same sort of things that, that older people will be very, very familiar with the British Army having done to de detainees in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland during the Troubles. Exactly the same thing. Stress positions, hooding, loud noise. Yeah, I mean, it is tantamount to torture. Abuse makes it kind of torture light in that way. Um, you know, I didn't even know I was going to go there, Sinead. I mean, I knew I was going to Iraq. There was no question about that. And I, I thought I'd be much more preoccupied with the kind of technology in Iraq. And although I am painting a portrait of a technologically mediated war, what struck me as most fascinating is that the, the irreducibly bodily element of warfare, 
you know, this is about bodies doing things to other bodies, and and that I, you know, that's where where I got to. It mm -hmm. just took me straight, and I think because of the the fact that there's this love affair at the centre of it, mm -hmm. again, emphasised the bodily. Well, and no, I didn't set out to expose the British Army's abuse of Iraqi detainees, or particularly say something about that. What I wanted to say something about is that we lose sight of the body in all of this. Yeah. Just as we lose sight of, you know, um, or, well, people in Britain very much like to lose sight of the fact that, that um, various things they like to lose sight of. One, they lost. You know, I think one, <laughs> the butcher says to, to a general, a British Army general in the novel, you know what they'll call this phase of the conflict in the history books, general? Defeat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because again, that's one thing the British haven't been prepared to acknowledge. And they certainly haven't been prepared to really properly acknowledge the suffering that was inflicted on the Iraqi people, and mm. nor is it that often acknowledged, say, in respect of, uh, you know, should we intervene in Syria? Oh, yeah, that would be a good idea, Britain. You know, that's a failed state, and there's that other failed state that you were involved in right next to it as yeah. well. Uh, so I think that's not acknowledged. And I think 2016, what a great year to bury bad news, uh, specifically the Chilcot report, uh, that, that really should have, in my view, been the occasion for a kind of truth and reconciliation. If anybody doesn't know what the Chilcot report, would you... Chilcot report was, was into the Iraq war and in, uh, into the failures of, of, of government and, and specifically into questions like the notorious dodgy dossier, which was the pretext for, for British involvement and things mm. like that. And, and, you know, Chilcot was quite unequivocal in terms of blaming everybody, yeah. you know, the, the politicians, specifically Blair, uh, his, his, uh, the man who's described in the novel as his filthy little flack. I think we all know who we're talking about there. <laughs> uh, MI6 in it up to their arms and the British Army itself who, who you know, really didn't forcefully enough, uh, you know, resile from the entire thing and say, well, certainly given the men and material that mm. we're given, we cannot do this. So, you know, I think that's, that came up. But what I think gave me, made me feel particularly angry when I was working on the book was that Michael Fallon, who was then Defence Secretary under, under the last Cameron government, instituted what I view to be a witch hunt of a man called Phil Shiner, who was a, a civil rights lawyer who was bringing the class action by Iraqi detainees against the British Army. And, and Shiner has now been vilified. He's been struck off as a solicitor. He's had a mental breakdown. This was a, a, a campaign in, initiated by Fallon and prosecuted with zeal by the current Prime Minister, Teresa, keep calm and carry on May. Um, there's, this, there's another short reading you might do for us. Is when mm. Jonathan actually arrives in Iraq. I think that's the section yes. you were going to read. Would you mind reading that for us? No, not at all. I'm, I'm particularly fond of the butcher. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they are quite dashing spies. It's a fresh morning for June and standing at the dropping-off point, sucking on a final gasper. The butcher feels goosebumps on his recently showered skin and the crepitation of his kippered lungs. It's always been a problem dressing for these sorts of trips, ones in which he'll traverse 20 or 30 degrees Celsius in less than 24 hours, squinting Towards the low rise of the Chilterns through his Marlborough smoke, he smiles wryly, remembering the reversible jackets and other sapper-esque stratagems he'd adopted as a young IB officer. No need for that malarkey nowadays. Besides, there are some occasions on which it's best to be yourself, be spontaneous. He remembers years ago, coming back from the S-Bahn at the Hackershermarkt. The wall had only been down a couple of years, and the middle of Berlin was full of all sorts of riffraff, watchers too. 
Close to his hotel, a street whore stopped him, some poor double-denim refugee fleeing the fashion disaster which had been the old Soviet bloc. Be yourself, she'd cried to the cold night air, her corpse breath sullying life itself, while her hand, clutching his overcoat sleeve, had been tendoned with track marks. Precocious of her, to have acquired a bad habit so well. Be yourself, be spontaneous, she'd urged him, and he'd laughed in her face. F off, Christiane F. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were speaking by, by email last week, I was asking you if you want to talk about what I've been calling the, the tripocalypse, uh, Donald Trump, Theresa May and, and Brexit. Um, which of those things most concern you or have you reached a place where you're becoming very accepting and tolerant and you're okay? <laughs> uh, Trump's the really worrying thing because he's a complete nut job and he has access to nuclear weapons. It's seriously scary. Uh, but, you know, number two with a gun... Uh, Brexit, unquestionably. But, but, but Brexit, it's a mistake, I think, and, and I think everybody understands this. It's a mistake to look at it instrumentally, uh, as if, the, you know, the kind of will of the people, if it were only can canalised in the right way, could somehow, you know, uh, carry us past this. Because the problem is that the, the, the European Union is is in real danger of breaking up, and it was in plenty of danger of breaking up before Brexit. Arguably, it's more in danger of breaking up even now, but its own internal systemic problems are very, very worrying in terms of the evolving political situation in Europe. I mean, we already have a war going on in Europe at the moment. Mm. I think Something we, we tend to like to forget about. <laughs> and you're, head you're heading up north tomorrow, I wonder. I, I, you might get a different sense of it when you go across the border here. It definitely is a... Huge issue up the north, yeah. Right. Well, I, mean, I was saying to, to my taxi driver in from Dublin Airport today. You know, the, the the thing that I think everybody finds, frankly, rather revolting about the May government at the moment is looking at the issue of the of the possibility of a hard border between the north and the south. Is why are there no proposals? coming from the May government on this. None at all. Uh, and the taxi driver, being a smart Dublin taxi driver, said, well, maybe that's their negotiating position. But you don't negotiate with your own people, let alone the citizens of the Republic who are as close to us as anybody could be. It's ridiculous. There are some obvious and simple propositions that could be made which would at least reduce proximate political tension at this point. So I'm amazed that nobody said anything at all. Do you think Trump's going to last the four years? No. What's going to happen? Well, he, either he'll launch a nuclear war in which none of us are going to last the four years. None of us are going to last the four years. Difficult to impeach him. He might resign. Uh, as I understand it, or my informants tell me, <laughs> uh, almost, I, I don't know if you recall that the XMI6 man, who I think he's called Chris Mercer, I can't remember his last name, who produced a dossier early on that was handed, that, that had in fact been commissioned by the Republican Party. Then you ask, so, so what appears, because you look at what's going on in Washington and you think, right, I know this is a shadow play of some kind, that the real stuff is going on behind, and they keep pussyfooting around this idea that, the, that Putin actually has compromising stuff on Trump. Well, he does. <laughs> he, he really does. We're really in a situation where what, the leader of one world power is yanking the chain mm. of another. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, extraordinary. But So what's going to happen? Well, it's going to come out in one way or another, and he'll, he'll be forced to resign even if he's not impeached. But I think, it, yeah, it's possible that he'll even be impeached. There's enough disquiet in... Because in, you need, I think, two-thirds of both houses mm. of Congress to, to progress impeachment. Do, do you get a sense, because we, we, we hear a lot of talk about, with his, him sweeping to fame uh, and to power even, that there is this 
there's a lot of, you know, but from Breitbart and Bannon and all the kind of Trump bros who were, you know, chest bumping each other at all the rallies, that there's a sense of, there's a whole swathe of, of, of men and a certain type of masculinity and a lot of those men's rights guys who have now feel very validated by having somebody like him in the White House. And I know that in some of your own work, there has been, you know, men have been burdened by sexual issues or class or various things. So do you think this modern chatter that, that we, ha we talk about, about the, the issue of, um, toxic masculinity or crisis in masculinity. Is it real? Does it exist? How do you feel about it? Isn't it just good old-fashioned patriarchy? I don't know why we have to invent new names for it. I mean, you know, men still own all the shit and they've still got their hands on the triggers. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think we need to kind of change the parameters or invent any new terms to describe this. It's mm. just business as usual, isn't it? Yeah, I, I feel, I wonder if it's maybe given people a little bit more, they're more gutsy in sort of, they're not afraid to say what they used to think. They might have hidden less PC views, they might not have spoken so publicly about the way they think about things. And now, because you have somebody like that who says and does what he wants, people feel it's okay to behave like that. Well, it may be, but I mean, we're also seeing, the, as it were, the countervailing phenomenon. We're seeing the, the snowflake generation, and we're, we're seeing people who can't be criticised and can't be offended at all and I'm I'm started to run into that pro these problems a lot myself and you know I think there's a, there's we're all used to the idea as we get older that you know we're starting the technology we're starting not to understand or you know there's a certain amount of slang that we don't get but there's also a kind of key moment when you get older I think when social mores have actually changed and I'm running into that problem. I'm, I'm constantly being accused now by younger people of being rude or being insensitive or being, you know, and I'm just not. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm what I'd, I would call robust and direct. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so I think that, that what I'm saying is if you think within the context of... of um, and I use the words advisedly, in the context of politically correct discourse, uh, you know, maybe it looks like chest thumping and a new kind of alt-right masculinity, but it could just be that it's, a, you know, a reversion to type. You know, it's not a specifically new phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, the gains of... You know, the problem is we have a lot of people for whom speech acts are, are, are more important than any other acts because they operate in arenas that are in some senses unreal. They're not really related to real economic considerations. They're not really related to the real rights and duties of people that, who are in parlous situations. They're in little bubbles, whether it's the academy or certain kinds of workplace, where you have to police yourself very, very thoroughly in the way you speak but your company makes guns, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, how, how, you've you've offended me as you know a, a person from a minority heritage, a person with an unusual sexuality, a person with you know blah blah blah. Uh, and I don't think we should be behaving like this in a, an up-to-date, modern, efficient company like ours that makes some of the best guns in the world. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? There's yeah. a certain kind of disconnect there, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, You've been a journalist for, for years and pre-internet and pre-dial-up mm. and all of that. And now uh, we're, uh, we're talking about technology and it features so heavily in the book. We're, we're in the area, the area of so-called fake news of, you know, search engine optimization of algorithms showing you the same thing on Facebook that you looked at once and it keeps trying to sell it to you for four months later. Um, are we in a, we're also in a world of less rigorous fact-checking and being first on the internet and not checking things and not verifying things. Um, what do you think the effect of technology and the internet is, is having on this, you know, in the age of, of tailor-made news that we have now well i mean trump and 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 what it means is that you can actually have governments of the stupid yeah, yeah. it means that you know the thing about trump was he was able to move the, the the web enabled him to mobilize stupid people who traditionally it's been quite hard to get into the polls often because they're illiterate <laughs> so they can't actually read any of your election material mm. but you know you can so that, I think that's the, the main fact. So in, in some senses, you know, what populists say, whether they're of the right or the left, is correct. You know, this is... is, is uh, you know, the great thing about the web is that, is that it attacks the elites. Uh, and Because, I mean, who was it who had the factual information and knew all that and made the right decision because they were fully... Only people who were educated and who, you know, read broadsheet newspapers and all that stuff. So in a sense, you can argue that, 
yeah, you know, you, you're getting a kind of egalitarianism of the intellect is beginning to make itself known in politics. Also, I would slightly kind of dispute that this is a particularly new phenomenon because, of course, anybody who, you know, it's like <laughs> I was thinking of launching a, a, a reality TV show called um, uh, Daily Mail Hate Island <laughs> in which all the contestants are confined on an island where the only media they have access to is the Daily Mail, <laughs> right? But then somebody pointed out to me that it, it was already going on and it was called Britain. You know? <laughs> um, so that was just kind of hopeless. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, there have always been filter bubbles of one kind or another. This is just a bigger and, and more wobbly yeah. filter bubble. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, well, it, I was thinking, one thing that struck me in the book is, is, well, there are these young guys who are all off fighting uh, in, in the Middle East. They're all, so they're essentially being killing machines, but they're all reading Harry Potter and they're getting their mothers to go to the shop and buy them the, the latest installments. So is there a sense of, of infantilization as well as that they're, they're doing this really terrifying, awful, frightening thing, but they're all still getting their mans to buy them Harry Potter? Well, I think that's exactly very much the other thing I wanted to, to get to grips with in, in, in this book. And, and, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> luckily I'm in Dublin, so I can say things like this. I think the attitude of the British people towards their armed services is pathetic and, and ridiculously over-sentimentalised and actually faintly disgusting. Uh, and, and if you look at the way in which, you know, every, every state has its army nation concept, the way in which the army relates to the nation. But in Britain, they want us to regard the professional army now as if it were the citizen army that, you know, won the Second World War and the citizen army that were killed in the trenches in Flanders, you know. And that's why Remembrance Day in Britain has become this huge state festival in which, you know, because it has to be, the sacrifice must be emphasised because otherwise somebody might point out that actually less than 500 troops, British troops died in a 14-year deployment in Afghanistan. Where, which is the number of men that would have been lost in three minutes on the first morning of the song. Many of those men, of course, are Irish, not British. Uh, so, you know, it is, it is ridiculously over-sentimentalised and ridiculously... And there's this sort of, you know, do we feel guilty? Do I feel guilty that young men are plucked off the dole queue and go with their Harry Potter books to... to uh, on foreign interventions in other states where they end up you know, perhaps inadvertently leading to the deaths of many, many other people. Do I feel, you know, humbled by their sacrifice? No, I think that they're, they're, they're you know, unfortunately exploited young men as they are in every war and that the, the penumbra of, of sentimentality that surrounds this is morally repulsive, actually. <laughs> and a way of hiding the reality of what Britain's war crimes actually have been. And is that ever going to be resolved? I mean, is it report after report, as long as there's still that war, I guess it's oh, well, still I think that's the thing. Chilcot yeah. should have resolved it, yeah. and it should have been the occasion for the Chilcot report, which should have been an occasion for massive public tit-beating and uh, acknowledgement of having done wrong. But because of the, the, the Trump tripocalypse, uh, it was a good year to bury bad news for mm. the British state. And, and now Theresa May seems intent on, you know, taking Britain, well, I don't think it's particularly May, but certainly some of the Brexiteers, that, 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 you know, seem intent on bringing Britain out of the European Union, sort of floating on a kind of cloud of red poppies, you know, sort of... <laughs> uh, because what does it amount to, this conviction that yeah. Britain is going to be, you know, a great independent nation, if not a recrudescence of the same old British imperialism that we got thoroughly fed up with quite a while ago? I want to just go back to, to, to phone very briefly, if I can, to pick up on something you said about the form of it and the fact that it is very continuous and broken up. And I was thinking there's an Irish writer called Mike McCormick who published a book very successful book and he the, the character in his book is a ghost and he there's no it's one continuous sentence and he said that he thought that a, a ghost would have no business with punctuation and that's why it's written the way it is so why is this work written the way this is and is it in any way a response to the internet age and you know oh yeah like i mean absolutely i mean the 
form of the novel is a response to the dissolution of the novel form. So, you know, the modernist's, imp the modernist impulse is always a reaction against the formal properties of a, of a particular literary form, and, and such is the strength of the modernist uh, response that things like the simple past become very problematic. He went to the pub. Really? How do you know he went to the pub? Were you there? You know, and, and why, why has he gone to the pub? Why is it done and dusted? Why can't we go to the pub with him? Yeah? Uh, and, and who are you anyway as an impersonal narrator? Would you like to step forward from the shadows and present your credentials as to why you know this story in the first place? <laughs> You know, my, my impulse to write, and write what people call stream of consciousness was because I thought, well, that's what my life's like. My life doesn't take, part, take place in the simple past. I was sitting with Sinead in the Smock Alley Theatre. No, we're, we're here right now. Um, and, and I think that the, the form itself, as I was saying before, you know, the novel form belongs to the, to the codex. And, and once people are reading digitally, there's the novel will... Well, for a start, people are reading less and less novels with less and less seriousness. But I think of my long line, there are no paragraphs, there are no chapters. I use ellipses for punctuation a lot. Uh, it, I think of it as being a bit like a news thread. Mm. Or a, a bit like a line of digital text in that way, and 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 it is the, physically the the form of the book represents the kind of dissolution of our literary tradition into this pixelated spume that's smeared all over our eyes and our fingers. Do you not feel it when you go to bed and you've been looking at the web too much? <laughs> you can feel it like when you come down in the morning and in the summer and there's a lot of sap on your car. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that, but what I will say <laughs> is, is if you think that, you, you talk about your older work and saying it looks a bit, you know, it's, it's more formal uh, mm. to, to, and you're more interested in writing more if, if it, uh, experimental can be a dirty word and a word people don't like. If you're interested in sort of messing around with form a bit more, if, if most people are not going to do that and you are going to do that, you said recently something about um, the idea that the, no the novel can act as this sort of a, a national DNA, sort of a taking the temperature of a culture. Um, would you like to see more writers sort of take on and try to respond to darker elements of life, whether that's war or politics or, say, Michel Houellebecq with Submission in France trying to talk about, you know, an alternative reality if something different happened in France in terms of the, mm. the political situation there. Um, more, should more people be doing that? If they're not going to take a risk with form, should they be putting themselves out there thematically? Well, I, th I certainly think it's... I can only think of, uh, of one other literary novelist, to my knowledge, and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, one other British literary novelist who's, who's addressed the Iraq War at all, right? At all. I mean, I think it's extraordinary that this hasn't been written about or hasn't been engaged with by fiction. Um, I've always felt that most literary fiction is, is written by people who read too much literary fiction for people who already read too much literary fiction, which is why it tends to both stylistically and formally be so samey. I mean, don't you ever think it's odd the way that, you know, literary prose is written? Because it sort of goes like this. I always think it goes like this. Dumpty, 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 dum, as if. Dumpty, 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 dum, like. Dumpty, dumpty, dum, here's another of my choice metaphors. Mmm, they're like little chalky bonbons I can pick. Yeah, really? Yeah. I mean, one thing you may have failed to notice in these three novels is there is not a single constructed metaphor in the entire 1,500 pages. No as if, no like. Because I don't, I mean, I don't think in metaphors, do you? I came into the Smock Alley Theatre. Mm. Mm, the audience are sitting there like a jury at a trial. <laughs> uh, no, you're just sitting there. <laughs> you know, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm constantly stunned by how crap my peers' works are. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, and, 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 and how I'm not lauded more. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but I mean, 
but it is, is it a, a writer, all this thing about art is meant to represent life and hold up a mirror and all that. Does, does an artist even have a, a job to do that? Is it, is it beholden on well, I think traditionally that? the novel was viewed as the kind of DNA uh, of, the, of the culture and you, you look back over the sort of Buggins turn of Nobel Prize winners and, you know, well, we better have some of that Egyptian DNA or that Romanian DNA up for offer. The novel was the central narrative form. And, it, and even if people didn't read Joyce or Proust or whoever it was, they aspired to it. People did aspire to it. And recall that Jimmy Jay believed that every Dublin cab driver should be, should be reading Ulysses. Uh, and that's just gone. Forget it. I don't know why you're even asking me, Sinead. It's just, <laughs> it's simply not the case anymore. Nobody looks to fiction, to, to literary fiction anymore for this master narrative of the culture. The novel, I would say, in the last 25 years has gently, gently, gently eased into the slow lane and then off into, onto the hard shoulder. <laughs> you, which is, explains maybe why you've, you've published a lot of non-fiction as well and uh, we did meet before when we, we went for a walk along the Thames uh, for a show that we did on walking and, and psychogeography something that really uh, is interesting to you and I know you've gone to JFK and got out of JFK and, and walked all the way into I've walked to, to, from to, Dublin Airport you've done, you didn't do it today Dun I noticed no. the cab reference site I was going <laughs> to ask if you've done it but you haven't I have done um, it in the past are there specific walks that, that you still want to take and also just again on the idea of technology we're all very quick when we go somewhere new to whip out the smartphone and google map it as opposed to just letting ourselves get get lost yeah. in a city so what walks do you want to do without google maps obviously well i mean you know i mean it is fascinating what's happening with this technology i mean if you think about the way in which the use of google maps i mean what global positioning satellite technology allows you to do is pinpoint location absolutely within a Cartesian cubic space that encompasses the entire planet. So total location, zero orientation. And that's a bit like the, the difference between reading digitally and reading in a book. It's the same thing. You know, when you read a text on paper and you come across a word you don't quite understand, you, you don't automatically go and reach for the dictionary, and you certainly don't push it with your finger because it's going to connect you to a dictionary that's built into the machine. What you do is you read on a little bit and, and you understand it in the context, in which case you've taught yourself a new word and increased your word power. God forbid that we should do that. Uh, you think about the way in which you orient yourself in a paper text in that way. It's the same as the way you orient yourself when you just use a paper map to find yourself your way around, because you have to reorient the map to sink it in it, and you're constantly enriching your sense of orientation as you move through the city. And what GPS does, and you, you see people, and you'll have done it yourself, the minute you get the GPS out, you're even more lost than you were, and you're utterly dependent on it, okay? Okay, psychogeography. For years, I worked with Ralph Steadman, the, the, the artist who he used to, on, on a column of that name for The Independent. And at one point, I, I said to Ralph, after years of working on his column, I, he said, I said, um, I don't know why. I said, what, what, what do you understand by psychogeography, Ralph? He said, oh, I have no idea what it means. I, think, I thought it just meant mad geography. <laughs> <laughs> so the term was, uh, was, was uh, originated by the situationists who were a sort of group of art revolutionaries in the Paris of the late 50s and 1960s who were very interested in this kind of... Well, their, their kind of leading theorist, a man called Guy Debord, believed in, in the idea of the derive or, or the aimless drift through the city. And his belief was that this, to aimlessly drift in a city, uh, particularly you know, these Western cities we live in, and with the lives we live, where I, if, I'm sure everybody here, or maybe everybody here, is, it, it belongs to the leisured classes, but most of us... You know, if you think about it, your movement around the city is absolutely defined by a, you know, metric of time and distance, just as if you were a cabbie with your own onboard meter. And Debord's view was to deviate from these 
time distance routes through the city was very, very radical and very, very destructive of late capitalism. It was a kind of ludic and antic revolution of its mm. own. Uh, so that's kind of what psychogeography is. It's, it's a kind of attempt to engage with your environment uh, in a way that is disruptive of normal quotidian patterns. In the, the show that you were on, Declan Kybert was on the same, same show and he was talking about Ulysses as the, the ultimate novel of perambulation and movement and engaging with, with, the, with the city. Um, I know you're a, a, a massive admirer of Joyce, so what does the work of James Joyce mean to you? Well, it's just the best, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just the best. I mean, it's so... Um, well, I, I often say this to people because I, I teach uh, Joyce, I teach Ulysses, over and above everything else, over and above the brilliance of the prose, over and above, you know, particularly something that enormously important to me when I moved, took the modernist turn, which is what Joyce can do is, without using perverted commas, he can move from one person's thought, he, he could write this scene, he would get Sinead's thoughts, my thoughts, what Sinead says, what I say, the description of the Smock Alley Theatre, and he'd get it all in a continuous line of prose. Now that's just flat out genius to start with. Over and above all of that, and, and I, I use the word advisedly because I'm not a humanist. I really am not a humanist. I, 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 Frankly, I'm more of a goddess than I am a humanist. <laughs> um, I mean, if you're going to worship something, I'd rather worship God than humanity, who, let's face it, are not doing a great job at the moment. <laughs> um, it is, though, the extraordinary um, human beauty of, of, his, of the emotionality that lies behind that writing. And, and you know... I've, I tend to reread Ulysses most years, and it makes me cry a lot. Uh, I'm deeply moved by it every time. I find it a very, very moving in that way. I like the purity of his career. I, lo I love that career path, you know. Book of poetry, play, collection of short stories, novel, exploded novel, utterly exploded <laughs> <Yeah>. novel. <laughs> Finny. <laughs> I love that. Um, listen, thanks so much to Will Self. Thank you very much to the International Festival of Literature uh, Dublin. Thanks too to Smock Ali uh, Theatre for having us here tonight. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you, Will. Uh, Will Self's latest novel is called Phone. It's published by Penguin. And my final thanks are to my producer, Regan Hutchins, and to series producer, Zoe Cummins. Thank you all.